being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is premium episode 37 the azusa street revival holy rollers oral roberts william branham the full gospel businessmen's fellowship international moral rearmament auto manufacturers the kardashians MK Ultra Subproject 84, Invesco, and Jim Jones. Today I'm recording from within the Giant Hands statue at Oral Roberts University. So the term Holy Roller came about around the 19th century. It referred to a sect of Protestants associated with the Free Methodists and Wesleyan Methodists. A descriptive term, it referred to their worship habit of shaking and dancing, even rolling on the floor. Sometimes people would faint, which was known as being slain in the spirit. The holy rolling, it's supposed to refer to spiritual fervor or ecstasy. Accompanying it would be lively gospel music and frequent shouts of hallelujahs or amens and so forth. I imagine my American listeners would be somewhat familiar with this form of worship, or at least, you know, the concept of it. There's a long and interesting history to the Holy Rollers and the broader holiness and Pentecostal movements. And, as always, there are complicated racial components, too, because a lot of people cite the Holy Roller movement as spreading through the United States through the efforts of an African-American preacher, William J. Seymour who started a tent revival in Los Angeles that triggered it all. This was known as the Azusa Street Revival, and the story went something like this. William J. Seymour was the one-eyed son of former slaves. He had studied with the Pentecostal preacher Charles Parham in Kansas before moving to California to minister there. On April 9th, 1906, Seymour and seven others set up a revival tent on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles. And began to preach. Seymour was preaching when suddenly, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor. Men in the audience began to speak in tongues, loudly praising God. There was spontaneous singing, and so forth. Seymour began baptizing people, healing, and saving souls. The appearance of the biblical signs of faith has always attracted people, whether as a sign of righteousness, or even just curiosity, or even derision. You know, these signs have always attracted a lot of people. On top of that, what was interesting about Seymour's ministry was that it attracted all types of people. Blacks, whites, and Latinos all came to worship, as well as people from all social classes. Seymour and his ministry ran services around the clock. There are stories of the blind having their sight restored, all types of ailments cured, and all manner of speaking in tongues, both glossolalia and people speaking in languages, you know, that, you know, like human languages that they wouldn't otherwise know. There are many accounts of people just straight shouting throughout the entire service. Now, this street revival actually went on continuously for like nine years. And there are all kinds of aspects to it that are very interesting. Tons of people visited. 
including a Armenian-American named Demos Shakarian. Maybe we'll return to Shakarian in a little bit. Another interesting angle is how Seymour's mentor, Charles Parham, actually came down to see all the commotion. He came to visit from Kansas, and he visited the Azusa Street Revival, like pretty early on. We're talking 1906. Parham was immediately freaked out by the racially integrated church. Although he was arguably more progressive than other clergy at the time, I mean, he did teach Seymour in the first place, for example, he was still pretty racist. And in Parham's words, the Azusa Street Revival was animalism. And he said that God did not want white people imitating unintelligent, crude Negroisms of the Southland and laying it on the Holy Ghost. Interesting side note, Parham would later be accused of sexual misconduct not long after, and he would be arrested in 1907 for, quote, the commission of an unnatural offense, unquote, which at that time generally referred to a homosexual act. He was also accused of financial irregularities. Now, Seymour, on his part, he ended up having a schism with another Pentecostal preacher, which split the California Pentecostal community. Seymour would die of a heart attack in 1922. But, to be sure, there's an interesting legacy here. Historians of U.S. Christianity argue that the Azusa Street Revival was the primary catalyst for the spread of Pentecostalism in the 20th century in the U.S. and later abroad. The Holy Rollers and Pentecostalism could have been a threat because it was, or had the potential to become, a popular, widespread, racially integrated church. And along with that, Pentecostalism, and specifically its trance-like state of fervor and ecstasy, clearly had the ability to deeply affect people. And things like that are always of interest to the powers that be. Were they interested in studying, controlling, and perhaps using Pentecostalism as a weapon? Why, yes, of course they were. Let's talk about Oral Roberts. So, Oral Roberts was an unsuccessful Pentecostal pastor in Oklahoma. He had been preaching for years without much success. Oral Roberts referred to a particular point in his life as a crucial point, like a conversion story, or maybe more specifically, because it's much more than that, he has this story of being chosen as God's special messenger here on earth. Almost like in the book of Isaiah in the Bible, when an angel came down and gave a blazing coal to the prophet Isaiah and had him touch it to his lips to sanctify him. Oral Roberts has the story of being chosen as a prophet. Allow me to recount the tale. As told in his book, Oral Roberts' Life Story, as told by himself, which is just very redundant, but as told in this book, Oral Roberts was a part-time pastor. At this point, he was 29 years old. He decided to switch his ministry and start doing spiritual healings which it's sort of, um, if you read in between the lines, you know, that is a lot closer to, like, chicanery and trickery 
least back then, probably still now. So Roberts told the story of being afflicted by the devil who entered him and began to whisper in his ear, so that's why you're entering the healing ministry. It's a racket and you want to get into it. And he continues writing, when I got home, I went to my room, closed the door, fell on my knees and began to pray. I wrestled with this awful feeling. Finally, I said, Lord, you can count me out. I just can't do it. For no matter what the motive of my heart is in preaching deliverance, people will just say, it's a racket. People appreciate this and have stood by me so that I never lacked for any good thing for the work of God. I believe that we have the proof that if you put the gospel first, then the Lord will add all these other things to you. In Oral Roberts' words here, he's, he wrote, The same morning he discovered a scripture passage, which read, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Then Oral Roberts talks about talking to his wife. And he said to his wife, Evelyn, Do you believe God will give me a new Buick? His wife said, No, I don't. Oral Roberts said, Well, I do. Evelyn, do you think that if I would believe strong enough, God would help me get a new Buick? She said, No, I don't. Oral Roberts said, Well, I do, and I'm going to do it. Now, Oral Roberts finishes the story by explaining how God inspired a used car salesman to go out and buy Oral Roberts' used car at the high ceiling and sell him a new Buick at close to cost, making it so that Oral Roberts had to spend almost nothing to get a new Buick. Truly a modern-day miracle. Oral Roberts then describes having a vision where God himself appears to him and commands him to take that new Buick and to preach across the land. Do you think that the prevalence of the General Motors plant and dealerships in Oklahoma had anything to do with the product placement in this stirring come to Jesus selection story? In 1947, Roberts founded his Evangelical Association. He started a magazine. He started broadcasting on radio. He would go on to become one of the first televangelists, and I would argue, not alone, that he was one of the innovators of what became the prosperity gospel. Oral Roberts' TV show would reach upwards of 80% penetration at certain points, just unthinkable levels of popularity on television. Oral Roberts claimed that he could raise the dead. <laughs> just baffling levels of, like, a self-aggrandizement. Roberts would take his show international. He would conduct crusades to six different continents. He claimed he had laid hands in prayer on two million different people. One of my favorite Oral Roberts stories is when he went to Johannesburg, South Africa in 1955, where he preached to a stadium of 20,000 people, all white, obviously. He founded Oral Roberts University in 1963. <laughs> I found a newspaper article alleging that Oral Roberts would wear Italian silk suits, diamond rings, and gold bracelets, which would be airbrushed out of pictures by his staff, you know, when they would make publicity pictures, just 
great stuff. Oral Roberts was part of the Kansas City Prophets, or part of the Charismatic Movement, itself a part of Pentecostalism. Now, when people talk about the Kansas City Prophets, they usually always mean Oral Roberts, but they also mean Young Brown, Jack Moore, William Branham, and Gordon Lindsay. Now, William Branham was a Pentecostal minister who was also a doomsday prophet. He was also associated with the Ku Klux Klan. He taught the serpent seed doctrine, which is to say that in the Garden of Eden, you know, Eve had intercourse with an actual serpent, the devil, and that certain races, the ones you would expect, were the result of this intercourse. Branham was closely associated with what became the Christian identity movement. And guess where Branham operated and ministered? Indiana. William Branham helped to launch the careers of Jim Jones, as well as Paul Schaefer, the Nazi pedophile in Colonia Dignidad. He also helped Robert Martin Gumbura, the Zimbabwe cult leader, as well as Leo Mercer, who ran a similar cult in Arizona in 1951. In Los Angeles, an Armenian-American rancher named Demo Shikarian, yes, that Demo Shikarian, started the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. Does that not sound like a car ad or something? <laughs> this was supposed to be a fellowship of lay businessmen who intended to spread the Christian gospel, but specifically of the Pentecostal variety. Interesting side note is that Demo Shikarian was the nephew of Tatos Kardashian. Tatos Kardashian is Kim Kardashian's great-grandfather. Tatos Kardashian promoted the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. Tatos Kardashian also brought over the Iranian faith healer and scam artist Avak Hagopian. He organized this Iranian scam artist to travel all across the United States. Yes, that Kardashian family. Don't get me started on the Kardashians. Hagopian would go on tour with William Branham and Clem Davies. Clem Davies was a clan preacher. So you see here, right? A group of wealthy businessmen are paying to spread Pentecostalism but specifically a type of charismatic faith-healing Pentecostalism. This would become known as the Apostolic Prophetic Movement. Some people have called it the Christian Taliban. Obviously pejoratively. Along for the ride is proto-Christian identity. And sneaking in the back door, of course, is anti-labor and anti-communist sentiments, obviously. Now, here's what really, really gets me. So, Branham and Hagopian would go on tour, right? And there was this weird incident where on stage in front of everyone, the Kardashian family and the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, you know, they tried to give both Hagopian and Branham a brand new car, specifically a brand new Cadillac. Both Hagopian and Branham refused, with Branham saying, 
Look, brother, you mean to tell me that I'd go down through Arkansas and some of those poor little women out there pulling cotton sacks with their back broke, eating fat bacon and perhaps cornmeal for breakfast, and say, there goes Brother Branham going down the street there in a new Cadillac car? I said, not me, brother. That don't run in my blood to do that. No, sir. If I got what I deserved, I'd ride a bicycle or be walking if it was going through there. No, that's right, brother, but it's all right now. Any of you's got a Cadillac. I ain't saying nothing against a Cadillac, but that's just, that's for you. See? All right. Which, you know, sounds nice and egalitarian and good. That's all well and good, but Branham did, in fact, receive the Cadillac. We know because we have a picture of it. He accepted a brand new Cadillac from the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. <laughs> now, what exactly is it about General Motors and these charismatic faith healers? In researching this episode, I found a bunch of Branham's speeches where he mentions car brands way, way more than you think would come up naturally. Both Cadillacs and Fords. Now, we know Branham in particular was gifted a luxury car more than once, which makes sense maybe in a little bit. We'll circle back to that. So Demo Shikarian would help launch Trinity Broadcasting Network. Trinity Broadcasting Network would fund John Olstein's ministry and later his son, Joel Olstein, who of course is still active today. Mr. Too Damn Prosperity Gospel. Anyway, I'm not talking about Oral Roberts and William Branham purely for fun. I mean, it is fun, but what I'm arguing generally is that this whole movement was created, or supported at least, by the powers that be to push Pentecostalism in order to push certain things that came with it, like anti-union sentiments, anti-communism, things of this nature. This broader charismatic movement and the weird blend of Christian identity, concepts that come with it, including the racism, all of this serves, I don't know, take your pick, maybe auto manufacturers. To support this claim, we have to talk about the moral rearmament movement. And I know I do this all the time, but I would recommend people check out The Farm, where they did some episodes on moral rearmament. Really good episodes. I'm not trying to rehash, you know, some of what they did, but I did have a few points that I wanted to hit, uh, some of which I think they talk about, some not, so. Moral rearmament grew out of the Oxford group. That itself would take a long time to explain, but the shorthand would be that the Oxford group was associated with the Milner-Cecil Rhodes clique of Anglo power players over there in England. For truly noited people who might know something about Carol Quigley, this is like glowing, red-eyes, real shit. But the Oxford group wasn't just Anglo vampires, right? They had some young bloods in there, some... <laughs> some plebes. And they specifically had a guy named Frank Bookman, who was a Lutheran minister. He was also an outright fascist. So the Oxford group met in 1938, and they were discussing geopolitics. As many of you know, every country in Europe was gearing up for war. 
they were discussing the need for Britain to rearm. But one member argued that literal rearmament wasn't enough. They needed to rearm society, morally speaking. Hence the name, moral rearmament. What's notable here, though, is that they weren't thinking of Nazi Germany directly. They were thinking of the Spain situation, with one of them saying, I find here the same sort of inflammable matter that made Spain possible, unless we and others see the bigger vision of spiritual revolution, the other may be possible. Speaking, of course, of the threat, the looming danger of social revolution, communist revolution. So moral rearmament was invented basically to forestall social revolution. Frank Bookman, of course, was the main driver of moral rearmament. Moral rearmament was always militantly anti-communist and anti-labor. For that reason, MRA focused on shoring up anti-union anti sentiments. MRA was engaged in labor unrest pacification work. Bookman was, like, absolutely a Nazi sympathizer. He was a truly baffling guy. Like, he was like a freaking weirdo, man. Like, he tried to meet with Adolf Hitler in order to convert him. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure Hitler was already, like, nominally Christian, right? I think, technically. Like, I don't... <laughs> he wanted to convert him to moral rearmament's approach to Christianity. Bookman said later, after World War II, I thank heaven for a man like Adolf Hitler, who built a front line of defense against the Antichrist of Communism. Speaking of moral rearmament and the general milieu, the anti-Nazi theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of the Oxford group, The Oxford group has been naive enough to try to convert Hitler, a ridiculous failure to understand what is going on. It is we who are to be converted, not Hitler. Another theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, argued against the Oxford group, and he said, In other words, a Nazi social philosophy has been a covert presumption of the whole Oxford group enterprise from the very beginning. We may be grateful to the leader for revealing so clearly what has been slightly hidden. Now we can see how unbelievably naive this movement is in its efforts to save the world. If it would content itself with preaching repentance to drunkards and adulterers, one might be willing to respect it as a religious revival method, which knows how to confront the sinner with God. But when it runs to Geneva, the seat of the League of Nations, or to Prince Starhemberg, or Hitler, or to any seat of power, always with the idea that it is on the verge of saving the world by bringing the people who control the world under God control, it is difficult to restrain the contempt which one feels for this dangerous childishness." Unquote. So you see, Bonhoeffer thought that the Oxford group was simply naive, but Niebuhr understood that the Oxford group was essentially a covert presumption of Nazi social philosophy. I myself am much more partial to the latter interpretation. I don't think it was simple naivete. I think they knew what they were doing. To that end, and to prove that point, <laughs> the smoking gun, as it were, for me, was through Henry Ford. 
I will quote a excellent book here, which I've used in you know previous episodes about the Nazis. This book, The Nazi Hydra in America, and I quote: Henry Ford was not known to be generous or supportive of charities. He never contributed any large sum to anyone, with one exception, the moral rearmament movement led by Dr. Frank Bookman, a notorious fascist and a Lutheran minister. Bookman preached a philosophy of pacification through labor, of labor through the use of force. Followers of Bookman read like a who's who in the anti-union movement, such as Harry Chandler, the reactionary publisher of the Los Angeles Times, and Louis B. Mayer. With this program for pacifying labor, Bookman rapidly opposed communism and praised Hitler. I thank heaven for a man like Adolf Hitler, who built a front line of defense against the Antichrist of communism. That's a quote of Bookman, of course. The book continues saying, while many of his apologists claim Hitler deceived him, Bookman never renounced never renounced fascism or changed his fascist views of labor. The main reason the moral rearmament group has persisted to the present, despite its controversial views, are the pro-business and anti-labor stance and the support it receives from leaders such as Henry Ford. Bookman was also the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Unquote. Goodman and the MRA were also associated with Goodwill Industries, I regret to inform you. Now it's interesting, right? <laughs> Listeners of Program to Chill know that Henry Ford, of course, gave large sums of money to the Nazi party, and he was not generous to charities. And then, oh look, what's that? He's giving to moral rearmament, which various distinguished people have argued is essentially the same social philosophy as Nazism. Okay, cool. Gotcha. I see what's going on. So we have hints, mind you, hints that General Motors perhaps supported Oral Roberts and William Branham. And then we know for a fact that Henry Ford supported moral rearmament. <laughs> What's more, we know that Henry Ford actually built Frank Bookman a cabin in Michigan. Now, bear with me here. I'm switching topics, but I think it sort of comes back, so stay with me. In one of my recent episodes, FBI vs. PTK Part 6, I discussed Dr. Martin Orne and the incredibly weird shit that he got up to, I suspect, while at Michigan's Ionia State Hospital. As a reminder, Dr. Martin Orne studied under Henry Murray. He worked with criminals doing narcoanalysis and hypnoanalysis. He headed the Office of Naval Research. He was associated with the so-called False Memory Syndrome Foundation. He testified at the Bianchi and Patty Hearst trials, and so on and so on. Now in that episode, I think I raised serious concerns about his association with the study of sexual psychopaths at Ionia State Hospital, disturbing experiments, psychosurgery, and so forth. I legitimately think that some of that stuff vindicates and proves the program to kill theses, thesis about the creation of serial killers, honestly. To keep up with that line of research, I found more on Dr. Orne's work. 
he wasn't just studying narco-hypnosis and aggression in sexual psychopaths. He was also studying cults. Check this out. And I quote, For the past one and a half years, a study has been conducted of the trance phenomenon occurring in the Pentecostal churches with the view toward understanding their relationship to other states of consciousness. This study has been facilitated by the availability by the availability of Mr. Redacted." Unquote. The passage I just read comes from what we have available regarding MKUltra Subproject 84, which studied many types of hypnosis. It is not entirely clear, but it appears to be related to MKUltra Subproject 39. So we know for a fact that MKUltra Subprojects were studying the trance state that Pentecostal churches could trigger. What do you think they did with that information? Here's another related passage in the documents. Quote, investigation of socially induced special states of consciousness under the direction of Dr. Blank, Dr. Redacted, unquote. And that is from May 1st, 1958 to April 30th, 1959. Allow me to switch gears yet, yet again and talk about another figure, William Sargent who was a British psychiatrist who worked closely with Dr. Ewan Cameron. Sargent, Sargent studied and promoted psychosurgery, electroconvulsive therapy, insulin shock therapy, and deep sleep treatments, just like Cameron. In fact, people have speculated, like pretty fairly in my mind, that Dr. Cameron was simply doing the things that Sargent was theorizing. By the way, I'm not sure if it's Sargent or Sargent, but it's spelled S-A-R-G-A-N-T. Make of that what you will. So in 1957, Sargent published a book, Battle for the Mind, A Physiology of Conversion and Brainwashing. From that book, and what we know about Sargent, he and Cameron were experimenting with LSD as early as 1954. I think that this is... <laughs> I think they were in Scotland around this time. I don't think Cameron was in Canada yet. In this book, Sargent talks about the religious conversion process, and I quote, By increasing or prolonging the various ways or inducing physical debilitation, a more thorough alteration of the person's thinking processes may be achieved. If the stress or physical debilitation or both are carried one stage further, it may happen that patterns of thought or behavior, especially those of recent acquisition, become disrupted. New patterns can then be substituted or suppressed patterns allowed to reassert themselves, or the subject may begin to think or act in ways that precisely contradict his former ones." Unquote. Speaking directly about brainwashing, Sargent wrote, If a complete sudden collapse can be produced by prolonging or intensifying emotional stress, the cortical slate may be wiped clean temporarily of its more recently implanted patterns of behavior, perhaps allowing others to be substituted more easily. Unquote. 
So you see, Sargent is basically talking about the same sort of things that Dr. Cameron would talk about and study relating to differential amnesia, which he was doing with his extreme terminal experiments, you know, doing that psychic driving, all that, what's the word, just really extreme shit. Side note here, some people will sit there and tell you that Dr. Cameron was a bad psychiatrist, that he didn't know what he was doing, that he was fucking up people's lives with no good reason. Take note of those people, because they either don't know what they're talking about because they haven't done enough reading, or they're lying to you. And you have to decide which it is. But... I can't tell you how many podcasts I've listened to where they say, oh, Dr. Cameron was a bad psychiatrist. Take note. Keep track of who tells you that. Because they were not fucking around with people's brains and achieving nothing. They were achieving things, alright. One more topic switch, I promise. <laughs> I think. There might be one or two more. Let's talk about Jim Jones. Now, I might never do a full Jim Jones episode. You know, start to finish the whole saga. There's a bunch of reasons for that. For one, the podcast Transmissions from Jonestown does a great job. Second, you know, you should just read, like... <laughs> A good version of that would be just me reading the article, The Black Hole of Guyana, in its entirety, by John Judge. Also, you could read Jim Hogan's article, The Secret Life of Jim Jones, a, paralytic, a Parapolitical Fugue. If you combine the two, I think you'll probably get as close to the truth as is possible. For me, speaking generally about Jim Jones, the smoking gun is that Jim Jones, as a child, was friends with Dan Mitrioni, a adult, former naval officer, who became a policeman. He, Mitrioni, of course, later became a CIA operative teaching torture techniques across Latin America. Extremely curious that they would know each other. In fact, we have a quote from Jim Jones, where he said, there was one guy I knew growing up in Richmond, a cruel, cruel person, even as a kid, a vicious racist, Dan Mitrioni. Now that quote comes from a typewritten fragment of an autobiography found amidst the carnage of Jonestown. But there are other indications that they knew each other too. There are several sources which say that they knew each other. What's curious is that no one knows why they knew each other. It doesn't make any sense. Mitrioni was like 11 years older than Jones. Their families didn't know each other. They didn't play together as kids or something. Jim Hogan speculates along these lines. Two possibilities suggest themselves. Either Mitrioni was counseling Jones in the way policemen sometimes counsel children, or their relationship had been professional. That is to say, Mitrioni may have recruited Jones as an informant within the black community. The second possibility is one to which we'll have to return." Unquote. If it's not clear, I think that Hogan is 
speculating in the first possibility that Jones could have been abused by Mitrione, which maybe. Lord knows Jim Jones acted like he had been abused and did a large amount of abusing himself. Separate from that, I think there's a few fun Jim Jones facts that I think are salient specifically to the topic we're talking about. The book Hold Hands and Die recounts frankly just bizarre stories of Jim Jones' magnetism as a child. We're talking like animals would just follow him around. And the book cites people who said that his preaching style was literally hypnotic. Which is like really bizarre that a child would know how to do that. On top of that, as a child, Jim Jones became a follower of a faith-healing woman in the Gospel Tabernacle Church. John Judge speculates that Jones might have been abused by this woman, because we know that Jones began to suffer nightmares after associating with her. Judge wrote, According to Jones' mother, he was terrorized by dreams in which a snake figured prominently. In 1947, at the age of 15, Jim Jones began a sidewalk ministry in Richmond, Indiana. This was not at all practical. It was 16 miles from his home in a working-class black neighborhood. This is where the whole informant within the black community angle comes in. Now, a little later on, from June 11th to June 15th, 1956, we know that Jim Jones held a tent revival in Indianapolis, sort of as a way to like jumpstart his career as an adult. He planned to share the pulpit with Reverend William Branham, Upwards of 11,000 people would attend this convention, would attend this tent revival. In the book Raven, the untold story of Reverend Jim Jones and his people, the book explains that both Jim Jones and William Branham both relied on fortune teller tricks and private detectives snooping around in order to gather information to do effective faith healings. Around 1956, of course, Jim Jones studied under Father Divine, a black evangelist and future cult leader. Hogan wrote that Jones made a study of Father Divine, emulated him, and hoped to succeed him is clear. The possibility should not be ruled out, however, that Jones was also engaged in collecting, quote, racial intelligence, unquote, for a third party, unquote. Now, among Jones's personal effects at Jonestown was a book that was checked out from the Indianapolis Public Library in the 1950s, which was never returned. I know that's pretty low down on the list of crimes that Jim Jones committed, but folks, you should support your local libraries. They're good. And you should always return your library books. This book that Jones never returned was Father Divine, Holy Husband, and the author quoted one of the black evangelist's followers saying, If Father dies, she tells you in the calmest kind of voice, I sure enough would never be calling in myself to go on living in this empty old world. I'd be finding some way of getting rid of the life i never be wanting before I found him. Unquote. It's written that way. 
I'm not injecting the accent. And the book continues, saying, If Father Divine were to die, mass suicides among Negroes in his movement could certainly result. Which, of course, is an insane and telling passage in a book that Jim Jones had read with him in Jonestown. Now, we also know Jim Jones left to go minister in Cuba in 1959. You know, an extremely normal time to go to Cuba. By the way, any time there are coups and revolutions happening, <laughs> and really weird people show up at the same time, like, don't be a rube. They're intelligence. Jim Jones is fucking intelligence. Anytime Scientology shows up and, oh, hey, what's that? There's a revolution going on in Greece. Oh, that's a crazy coincidence. No, fucking grow up. They're, it's intelligence, right? Like, I'm sorry. Come on. So, <laughs> after that, Jim Jones went to Belo Horizonte in Brazil, which just so happens to be where Dan Mitrioni was working undercover as Office of Public Safety Advisor to the U.S. Consulate. Like, the movements of Jones and Mitrioni in Brazil are almost laughably correlated. Jones left Belo Horizonte for Rio de Janeiro, coinciding with Mitrioni going on vacation and then returning, not to Belo Horizonte, but to Rio. It's literally too much. It's extremely related. Now, for me, personally, and I forget if transmissions from Jonestown, which I'm not going to criticize or anything, I forget if they talk about this, but for me, some of the most interesting stuff that I've recently been looking at with Jim Jones relates to his employment in Brazil. While Jim Jones was in Brazil, he worked for a company called Invesco SA. So what is Invesco? Invesco SA was created as a venture capital firm in 1951. First of all, that's extremely early for a venture capital firm, at least to be consciously phrased that way. Its original name was Expensao Tecnico Industrial S.A., which is to say E.T.I.N., which was a subsidiary of Victor Holt S.A. Industria e Comercio. It was set up by employees of Pricewaterhouse, the accounting firm, including a man that was rumored to be a Nazi spy during World War II. Although Invesco had Brazilian investors, it was euphemistically known to be run by the Swiss. Now, in Brazil, in the 1950s and 60s, there were a lot of Swiss people walking around, if you catch my drift. They were Swiss, not German, right? Wink. So the Brazilian Herald quotes two different Invesco employees saying that Jim Jones was hired to work for them on commission. There's a quote here. We hired him on a strictly commission basis, and as far as I know, he didn't sell anything in the three months he worked for us, the former assistant manager said. Another quote says, As a salesman with us, Jones didn't make it. He was too shy, and I don't remember him selling anything. Do you think anyone has ever said Jim Jones is too shy? The literal Pentecostal preacher and literal former salesman and cult leader. Too shy? Sure, dude. Do you want to know who owned Invesco? Of course. Of course you do. There were several business interests that owned Invesco, including Gilbert Huber Jr., 
maybe Hilbert, I don't know, I, I don't speak Portuguese, but he was a Brazilian publishing magnate who also funded the Institute de Pesquias e Estudios Sociais, IPES, which some people have called the Brazilian John Birch Society. Interesting, right? There's also a woman named Joyce Huber Bloomer. She was British. Jim Hogan says that she attracted a certain amount of attention in the Brazilian press for what has been characterized as a baby-selling enterprise. Yes, you heard me right. A baby-selling enterprise. To what end? I, you know, I can't tell you. I tried to track it down, but couldn't find much. And then there was a Swiss man named Werner Bloomer who owned galleries, art galleries. There was also an American named Scott Macaulay Johnson who was described by various people as a mystery man with an unclear source of wealth. You know, not to be too coy, like people in Brazil, at least in the people in the know, knew that Invesco was linked to the CIA and to organized crime. But, Invesco, what did they actually sell? What was it that Jim Jones was not selling? What was their actual bread and butter apart from being shadowy? <laughs> they sold shares of mutual funds managed by the company. It was literally the same structure, same scam, that Bernie Kornfeld ran with Investors Overseas Service. Except they were doing it in Brazil rather than Europe. For those of you who don't know the Bernie Kornfeld saga, oh, oh how there's so much to that. But the long and short of it is it was a scam that linked into like so many other things, <laughs> including Resorts International, which links of course to like the Mafia, to Donald Trump, all kinds of stuff. I'm telling you, you if you follow the money, you'll get closer to the truth than not. And if you follow the money on Jim Jones, boom, what do you get? Immediately, you're confronted by intelligence ties. This isn't very hard. You just need to, like, look at things with, you know, the right ontological perspective <laughs> and use certain tools like just following the money. One final note, Hogan points out that Jim Jones' CIA file remained open a full 10 years after his death, but was closed after Dan Mitrioni was assassinated by the Tupamaros guerrillas. <laughs> Hogan says it best. What I am suggesting then is that Richmond Police Chief Dan Mitrioni was recruited into the CIA under State Department cover in May 1960, that a CIA file was opened on Jones because Mitrioni intended to use him as an agent, and that Jones' file was closed and purged ten years later as a direct and logical result of Mitrioni's assassination in 1970." Unquote. I completely agree, or rather I should say I see no reason to disagree. To bring this full circle, we know that MKUltra Subproject 84 was studying the effects of trances in Pentecostal churches. In relation to these trances, we know that they were studying, quote, socially induced special states of consciousness. We know that Jim Jones was being run as an informant for Dan Mitrioni. 
we know that he ended up running a cult that specialized in, oh, I don't know, socially induced special states of consciousness. And also, you remember how MKUltra Subproject 39 was studying sexual psychopaths? Well, I'll be damned if Jim Jones doesn't fit that to a T. It isn't talked about that often, but Jim Jones was known to be a rapist, just an outright predator, just wild shit. Like, by the end of Jonestown, there was known to be public humiliations and public rapes. He was known to abuse, you know, both genders of his cult sexually, just like really wild shit. There's credible allegations that he abused children, like the whole gamut, right? Through Branham, there's a link between Jonestown and Colonia Dignidad, at least a connection, where similar horrors took place, albeit more Nazi-ish, right? And all of this is upstream from not just intelligence agencies, but also, bizarrely, auto companies funding charismatic Christianity movements that bring along literally insane racist Nazi baggage with it. But for them, of course, the primary motive is probably the anti-labor, anti-union sentiments, right? Now, I'm aware that this is a lot to take in. But there's no way to understand all of this except in relation to other things. Trance states being studied in MKUltra subprojects had an immediate direct application with Jonestown, as well as with what became prosperity gospel, televangelism. Lord knows we know how Pat Robertson and those psychopaths pushed a constituency to have right-wing politics, which then got brought out for, like, the Reagan era, right? It's hard not to see all of this as by design. Like, come on, man. Like, this is all connected. Just like how if all the brakes tend to point in a certain direction, all of the stuff I've brought up, all of it tends to break towards making the entire country more right-wing more racist, more susceptible to just, you know, televangelist fuckery. It's all bad. Like, start to finish. They don't want unions. They don't want people to be normal Christians. Like, auto companies, intelligence, moral rearmament Nazis, all of them are pushing this patently criminal type of Christianity. They're pushing these ecstatic states. They're pushing scam artists, televangelists, cults. All of it is to undermine just solidarity, worker power, just normal Christianity. You know, you name it. So, don't be fooled. Do research. Don't fall for these shitty churches. Don't fall for cults. I mean, what else more is there to say? For sources, of course, today I used The Nazi Hydra in America by Glenn Yeadon and John Hawkins. Also used some of Recluse's blog, Vice at View, on the moral rearmament stuff. 
also Mike McClory's blog. Um, I already called out John Judge, Black Hole of Guyana, uh, Jim Hogan's excellent article. Also, I have to shout out the extremely good website, the William Branham Historical Research site, which is just like an inexhaustible, like highly useful blog that assembled a lot of the stuff with like Branham and his little clique of false prophets. Oh yeah, those uh, Jim Jones books, The Raven, Hidden Terrors is another one that's about Dan Mitrioni. Also, Hold Hands and Die, that was another one. A lot of sources. I can probably post some of them because it was a lot of articles, but thank you so much for listening, dear listeners. I believe by the time this airs, I should have merch up if you want to grab a t-shirt. Just tell a friend about the show. I'm happy to have people listening. I'm having the time of my life. Thank you for listening. And God bless. I'll be coming home